Well, if you noticed, the music that we've been singing is focusing so much on grace, so thank you for our worship team and leading us, our hearts to see the great character of God's grace. This is really where we're going to focus our study this morning. I'm a person that generally doesn't like change. I like things to remain the same for the most part. Have you ever visited uh, more remote towns like going to eastern Washington and you see uh, service stations back when they were actually service stations and not just gas stations and you see the old buildings sometimes they have the old soda pop signs like crush and stuff it just reminds you of a different era and you look back sometimes and wish things hadn't changed the way they are today one of the beauties of the gospel is the unchanging grace of God and this is where we're landing in our study this morning of the Chapter 3 and really chapter 4, chapter 4 of Romans is focusing so heavily on a faith that is of the grace of God. So please join me in God's word. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. In fact, this is our third part in our study of the unchanging grace of God. But because of the length of these verses, this is part one of part three. And we'll look at part two of part three perhaps next week. And I'm beginning to see that in our study of Romans... I'm not going to be able to go through a great number of verses in one sermon because there is so much in Romans in just a few verses. Let's read verse, or you can follow along with me as I read, beginning verse 1 of chapter 4 down through verse 17. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those, David wrote, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. And whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, Abraham which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. <clears throat> For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about faith, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, which is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made of you. <clears throat> In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Father, would you be with us in a way that reveals truth, in a way that instructs us in your truth, in a way that transforms us by your truth, by your spirit, minister to us this morning as we worship now under the authority of your word. The word has now been read. Help me to speak well on it. Help us to understand not only its meaning, but how this meaning applies to our lives. And therefore, Father, would you sanctify your church this morning? Transform us more in the likeness of your son because we've come under the counsel of your truth. Enlighten our minds, expand our understanding, and Father, sanctify us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Romans 4, 
as stated previously, is a critical defense of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works. And in this part of the letter to the church in Rome, Paul brings in the testimony of two Old Testament pillars of the Jewish faith, Abraham and David. And really, it's predominantly Abraham that's used as an example. David is almost introduced as an as a instrument to shore up what Paul is writing on Abraham. Paul goes to this declaration in Genesis 15 about Abraham to show that from the very beginning, God had credited to Abraham his own divine righteousness because Abraham believed the promises of God. Now, in last week's study, Paul turns back to the Psalms and he quotes from David's hymn of repentance and faith in Psalm 32, where David recalls or recounts the anguish and the, the, the suffering that he felt because of his own sin. And he talks about how God had delivered him by his grace. So at the same time, the, the hymn, Psalm 32, is a hymn of repentance. It is a hymn of praise to God for forgiving sin and restoring the fallen by his loving kindness. Paul carefully shows his readers that David wrote these words as a sinner who had been blessed by God, a God that imputed his own righteousness to David apart from the works of those who believe in him. Paul interprets that psalm for us here in Romans chapter 4. Paul then returns to Abraham to show the proof of his argument is clearly seen in that God declared Abraham justified long before he was even circumcised. And this was a critical point to the Jewish people who saw themselves in a right standing before God because of that particular ritual. They had been separated out and marked by God, and therefore they saw themselves as the property of God and entitled to the kingdom of God because of that ceremonial ritual. Yet the biblical evidence is not supportive of that false claim, as Paul makes clear. God had declared Abraham justified by faith at least 14 years before God ever required Abraham to be circumcised. And the point that is driven home in that argument is that salvation does not come by the works of ritual, but by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ. And this salvation is available to all who believe in the salvation of the Lord God, both to Jew and Gentiles. And because of this, Abraham is declared the father of all who believe, not just the father of believing Jews. That's what was stated in verse 12. The third part of our study this morning, where we pick up in chapter 4, continues to focus on the salvation of all who believe in God, the God who justifies sinners again by his unchanging grace. Salvation for sinners was no different for Abraham than it is for us today. Paul has established that salvation is for those who believe, who trust the promise of God, just as Abraham had done. Now in the last portion of this letter, Paul turns his attention to the law, showing that Abraham was not justified Only apart from circumcision, he was justified apart from the law as well. The law that was given some 430 years before Abraham, or after Abraham. Therefore, Abraham was most certainly not justified by doing the works of the law that did not even exist at this time. And in this final section, Paul continues to reinforce justification of the Lord that comes by faith. And I think it's worth noting here that many of the things that we see in this section have already been stated by Paul. We're seeing a repetition of truths that show how important this doctrine is. The text focuses on faith that was found in Abraham and not in the works of the law. But the context extends well beyond the Jewish application here just because of the mention of the Old Testament law. When Paul is saying, apart from law, he is actually saying, apart from the works of man. Salvation is by faith, apart from the works of man, even the works of the Jewish people in regard to the Mosaic law. 
And this applies to obedience to even the natural laws of God that might be in the hearts of men, the hearts in Gentile men and women. Sinners are saved by faith apart from works that keep the God, that, to keep God's standard. Man's ability, man's attempt to keep God's standard, God's laws. And so this introduces us to a new section, God's promise through faith, which is where we're going to focus our attention on, verse 13 down through verse 17. Again, I emphasize, when we see the word law, what Paul means here is the works of the law, man's attempt to add something of his own efforts so as to be saved as a means of salvation. In verses 13 to 17, where Paul uses Abraham to show that God's promise to save sinners will come through faith and not through the law, this is how it reads in verse 13. And as we've noted before, the law would not come on the scene for several hundred more years. And while the Jews may have claimed that Abraham kept the law that he didn't have, and that was the Jewish claim, that Abraham was a keeper of the law even though he didn't have it. Paul is clearly showing, no, that is not the case. You go back to Genesis and you see what God declared of Abraham. He declared that Abraham was justified because he believed. It does not say that Abraham was justified because he believed and he obeyed God. That's the point that Paul makes here. Therefore, not only was Abraham justified without being circumcised, now in this part of, the, of chapter 4, he is showing that Abraham was justified apart from his keeping of the law. He was justified by faith apart from works, of works of the law that he didn't even possess at the time. As noted last week, this speaks to an important doctrine that we understand. It is the imputed righteousness of God to Abraham's account. And as we stated last week, this is an imputed righteousness. It is not an inherent righteousness. Abraham was not a good man when God found him. There was no righteousness in Abraham that God was satisfied with. And therefore, because Abraham believed the promise of God, God imputed his own righteousness, laid his own righteousness to Abraham's account. This is an important doctrine when we're talking about justification by faith alone. In Galatians chapter 3, and if you could turn back there for just a moment, Galatians chapter 3 <clears throat> And in verse 28 and 29, this is what the Apostle Paul writes in regard to the salvation that belongs to all who believe. Verse 28, Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek or Gentile. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. If you're a believer here this morning in Christ, by faith apart from works, you're part of Abraham's lineage. I haven't got an ounce of Jew in me that I know of, but I am still a descendant of Abraham because I believe just as he did. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, and you are an heir according to the promise, the promise that was made to Abraham. This is what is meant by Abraham being an heir of the world. He was a believer in the promise of God's salvation, and all who believe down through the ages are his spiritual descendants by faith. The Jews have no claim on Abraham simply because they're physical descendants. The true children of Abraham are those who believe God as did Abraham believe. And as Paul has shown, this belief in God was that he justifies sinners by faith apart from works, apart from ceremony. To add faith to works is no longer a belief in God that Abraham and David had. The word that Paul uses for promise has the idea of a divine pledge. If you go back to Genesis, that word promise isn't used. But what Paul is telling us is that when God speaks, he is making a divine pledge, which he did to Abraham. And that pledge, that promise, belongs to all who believe, even those of us today that are not Jews, but our faith is in the promise of God to save. For us as believers, I think this is a wonderful truth 
to say that we are descendants of Abraham and we are heirs of the promise that God made to that man. It is a promise to receive God's blessing and not a curse. And most important, this promise would provide a redeemer from the lineage of Abraham that would make our salvation possible. Remember, faith doesn't save us. It is merely the instrument or the means to the cross that does save. It has to be the work of Christ. And if we had faith and there was no substitutionary atonement, we would still be just as lost. Faith is the medium. Faith is the channel. Faith is the instrument that brings us into the salvation of God. Abraham believed that promise. He believed in that salvation. Though he may not have known all the details of it, he believed that God would save. Paul then continues to teach both a negative and a positive view of God's promise that comes by faith. We're going to look at first the promise nullified and then second the promise fulfilled. The negative and then the positive. Beginning verse 14 and 15, we consider the promise that is nullified. First, if God justifies sinners by their works of the law, if God were to say, I'm going to save you by your works or your good deeds, Paul says, then faith is void, God's promise is nullified, and those who remain under the law and try to obey that law, they do nothing but secure the wrath of God upon themselves. This is a very dramatic declaration in verse 14 and 15 with three very powerful condemnations. First, when it says that faith is void, this was a striking condemnation, not only to the Jew, but you realize to all of the religions of the world where the devotee may declare they believe in God, but they're attempting at the same time that they believe to merit God's favor by their own good works. Whether that is by the law of Moses or the laws that men ascribe to their religious system. And sometimes the religions of the world produce very moral people, does it not? We have seen people like Mormons or even sometimes Islam. They can be very moral in certain regards. But how does God see that morality? That's the issue. Where one is working for God's approval and hence to be saved by him, that person's faith of God is no value. Do you realize the strength of what Paul is saying here? People can be very religious, very devoted, espouse their belief in God, even their belief in Christ and the cross. But if they're attempting to add works to that faith, Paul is saying that faith is useless. It is not a faith that God recognizes at all. John Murray wrote, there is a contradiction between faith and works. The one is exclusive of the other. In other words, faith does not belong with works at all in order to merit one's salvation. Faith and works go hand in hand to those that are saved. Faith produces works. But those works have no part in faith in securing one's salvation. It is faith alone. What Paul is saying in verse 14 is a powerful indictment of every religion in the world, but the Christian faith. And I would emphasize the Protestant Christian faith. Meriting God's favor does not fit into God's plan. And so this is a very strong condemnation that Paul has introduced into his argument. It's been in there from the beginning. When it comes to our justification, God will only make that legal declaration. He will only declare someone justified who is believing in his promises, believing in his salvation, and believing in his alone. The moment the men add works to faith, it is no longer a belief in God's promises because the promise of his blessing is only for those that come to him by faith. Where works are added to faith, faith is then made void or empty or of no effect. That's the Greek word, the meaning of the Greek word void. Empty, no effect. It is void. Second, <clears throat> the promise of God is nullified, meaning it's entirely useless. It is abolished. It is done away with. 
Again, that word nullified in the Greek, it is useless. It is abolished. It is done away with. When God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and from his lineage all the nations of the earth would be blessed, this promise included the Messiah, who would be sent by God to be the Savior of the world. This promise or divine pledge was for Abraham the believer and for all who would believe in the same way. God credits his own righteousness to their account based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. The sins of the believer have been placed on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who hung on the cross and made the penalty or took the penalty away or paid the price for our sins. And in the case of Abraham and all the Old Testament believers, the sins of those believers would one day be placed on Messiah, who was the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. He was punished for those sins. He then died to make full atonement for those sins. He rose again from the grave after three days, declaring his victory over sin, death, and eternal judgment. And the scripture says, all who repent of their sins and place their faith in him, eternal life is granted, the forgiveness of sins is applied, and they become the inheritance of Jesus Christ, as it says in Ephesians 1, and a descendant of Abraham. The negative side of this promise is that all who attempt to add their own meritorious efforts to faith, this promise is entirely useless, it is abolished, it is done away with. In fact, to add our own works to our faith is an offense to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's saying, in essence, Jesus didn't do enough on the cross for me, and therefore I must do works in addition to faith. And this is why Paul is so strict and so dogmatic on these matters here in verse 14 and 15. Faith is void. The promise of God is nullified. That is strong language to somebody that claims, I'm a godly person. I'm walking in truth. I love the Lord God. I love Jesus Christ. I believe in the cross. But I also believe I have to work to earn or to merit the favor of God. That is an offense to the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. It's saying, he didn't do enough on my behalf. I will add my own merits. Paul is saying their faith is useless. The promise of salvation does not belong to them. And third, verse 15 tells us that those who work under the law bring about the wrath of God. They are still under the judgment of God. In writing these words, Paul does not mean that the law itself produces God's wrath. That would make no sense because God is the one that gave his law. Rather, the context of chapter 4 is clearly showing those who attempt to keep the law as their means of salvation. There are those that will be judged under the law and they'll be condemned by God for their failure to keep the law. They claim that they're living by the law, but they can't possibly Keep the law to God's standard. God is holy. He is righteous. We've already seen these truths. Man is incapable of keeping God's law to his standard. Therefore, they can't depend on their own works. And if they are attempting to do so, they're still under the judgment of God. They're under the wrath of God. And they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And they're going to give an account for why they did not keep the law as they were attempting to do. So they're still under the law. The second half of verse 15 implies the purpose of the law then. As Paul says, where there is no law, there is no violation. If God had not given the law, sinners wouldn't have the knowledge of sin. Paul said that back in chapter 3, verse 20. God gave his law to men for that very reason, not to save them, but to show man the righteousness of God that man is unable to keep. The man's depravity prevents him from living up to God's righteous standard. The law was given to show violation. The law showed man his violations against God. But for that very reason, the law couldn't save because it exposed man's inability to keep the law. So the law was given to show sinners their need of God's salvation through his son. But again, the negative view of God's promise 
is that those who rest not on faith alone, but on their own works and faith, do not receive the promise of divine blessing as did Abraham. The very law they have placed their hope in is the law that condemns them to the wrath of God. This is so because none have been able to live perfectly by God's law. This has already been shown to us in chapter 3 as Paul quotes the Old Testament scripture and saying there's none righteous, not even one. There's none that understands. There's none that seek God. No one is doing good, not even one. That was an Old Testament declaration. It is not something Paul invented and wrote to the Romans here in chapter 3. And because of that failure to live in righteousness, to do good, because of a rejection of justification by faith alone, all workers of the law are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. They will be eternally condemned to his wrath. This is a negative view of God's promise to Abraham. To believe and to work only makes one's faith void. The promise of God is nullified and their failed works will bring about his wrath. But Paul does not leave us there in the negative view. As we turn to verse 16 and 17, the promise is nullified by those who work. But those who believe by faith, as did Abraham, the promise is fulfilled. This is the positive view of the promise. Paul does not leave his readers with a negative view of God's promise. He builds on what is meant by the justification doctrine. This was only meant to show the incompatibility of law and faith. So we have the negative and positive to show us that. Law and faith don't go together. In other words, the works of man versus faith in God. This is what Paul is demonstrating by giving us the negative and positive. Verse 16, it shows us then the positive. For this reason, it is by faith. Why does he say for this reason? It's reflecting back on the negative view as he introduces the positive. The reason that is being referred to here is found in the preceding verses describing the one who attempts but fails to keep the law. And that is a description of every human being in creation apart from the Son of God. Every one of us were failures at keeping the law. Whether we're talking about the Jews' failure to keep the law of Moses or talking about the Gentiles' failure to keep the laws of God that is written on our hearts, all of us have failed. That's what it says in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man's only hope, therefore, is to trust or believe in the salvation that God has fully provided in the atoning sacrifice of his Son. It is Christ alone that provides the hope of mankind to enjoy eternal life and the forgiveness of sin. And when we say Christ alone, it means that we believe in his work on the cross apart from any work of man so that we may be justified by God. Man's inability to keep from sinning is why God provided justification for sin apart from man's works. Since man is incapable of working for his own incapable of working for his own salvation, Paul writes, for this reason, God has created a salvation that is apart from works. It can't rest on our works. It rests on faith in the work of God. The only means by which the promise of God's salvation would then come is not by the works that men cannot do, but by faith alone in the work that the Savior did do. And this is what is expressed in verse 16 and 17. Follow along again. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also of those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. First, I want us to note there are three parts to this promise that is so positive, this promise that is fulfilled by faith. First, justification by faith alone affirms the grace of God. Justification by faith alone affirms the grace of God. That is what Paul advances here in this very first part of verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. So when we say faith alone, apart from works, we are declaring God's grace to save. 
It is God's grace that saved. Grace is one of the most important words in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a word that makes salvation unmistakably the work of God from start to finish. If you were in the Sunday school class this morning, you were hearing about grace and salvation from start to finish. From our inability to even seek God to our failure to please him in our very best moral behaviors, all the way to our powerlessness to affect any change in our eternal destination. Not a single one of us have the ability to do that, to determine I'm going to heaven or hell. That is in the hands of God alone, being justified by God. I can't declare myself justified before God. Only he can make that declaration. That is entirely a part from man's contribution. So when we say we are saved by grace, you and I know what that means, don't we? It is from start to finish a work of God to save sinners. Yet the love of God for sinners has moved him to do for us what we do not deserve and what we cannot possibly work for. Again, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. They become useless. Look, if none of us seeks him, how are we going to be found by him? The word says, none of us seeks God. How are any of us going to be found by him? Unless he seeks us out. Because God is the true seeker, isn't he? God is the one that seeks. It must be God that comes to us and raises us up from spiritual death God must be the one that grants spiritual life who draws us to his son so that we might be saved. God is the one that draws us to his son so that we might believe and be saved. John 6, verse 44 and verse 65. It has to be God's son who would live the only life that God would be pleased on. That's what God declared from the Mount of Transfiguration. In this one I'm pleased. In Monty I am not in my son, I am well pleased. I'm fully pleased in him. And therefore, he's the only one that could take our place on the cross. He's the only one that could be our substitute. And only in his sacrificial death and resurrection could it possibly accomplish the redemption of men out of sin that is needed. We needed that redemption. Somebody needed to buy us out of our slavery to sin, and we couldn't do it for ourselves. You couldn't do it for me, nor could I do it for you. I couldn't do it for myself. Only by God's grace to sinners does he grant eternal life to those who put their faith in his son. When it comes to the salvation of sinful humanity, faith and grace are bound together. And that is what is meant by faith alone and grace alone, which of necessity must lead us to Christ alone. Only he can save. The only hope for humanity is is the cross. Second, justification by faith alone guarantees our salvation. It not only promotes and exemplifies the grace of God to save, justification by faith alone apart from works guarantees our salvation, as Paul writes there in verse 15 and 16. That word guarantee means firm, steadfast, sure, it leaves the saving of sinners fully in the hands of God who alone can declare one to be justified. As stated before, our salvation is by faith alone and God's grace alone. When a sinner believes, their faith rests on the work that only God can do, the work that only could be done if any of us are to be saved, had to be done by God. So the Son of God came and did it for us. If salvation rested on man's merits or abilities, at what level of performance would the perfectly holy God be satisfied with us? We, if it were by works, we would have no confidence in ourselves. We had to have no assurance. Am I saved or am I not saved? I remember years ago talking to a good friend that was being introduced to the Catholic faith. And I went to a book that showed the process of Catholic redemption. And though they profess Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary atonement, in order for a Catholic to be saved, there is this long process of baptisms and indulgences 
and meriting the favor of God. And when you come to the end of life, you have no assurance. And so they've created purgatory. It's kind of a holding place. And, and those that are alive on the earth can buy indulgence or buy, buy grace to merit to your account. Hopefully you'll end up in heaven. That is not the salvation Paul is talking about here. Salvation is apart from meriting grace. We don't work by indulgence. We don't get there by indulgences or by baptism, by ritual, by any work of God's law. It is by faith alone, and that guarantees our salvation because it's not resting on our faulty works. Because again, if it was works, at what level of my work would I be guaranteed salvation since I can't keep the works at all? From our perspective, we could never truly be assured of salvation if it were by works. But more importantly, we may be unsure of our standing with God if we're working, but God is not unsure of where we stand with him. Let's read a description of where we stand with him when we are doing the works to merit salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 3. This is God's view of the one that works. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Why disobedience? Because we can't obey God. So here we are. Among them, we too all, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, even as the rest. We're all in this. If we're saved by works, here we are. That's how God sees us. That's a biblical description of the spiritual deadness of mankind through the eyes of God. With him, there is no uncertainty as to what it means when, it's, when he says there's none righteous, no, not one. Man working for his salvation may leave a measure of uncertainty as to what eternity holds for him, but there is no uncertainty with God. If you're working for your salvation, you are dead to him in your trespasses and sin. If sinners are not trusting in his grace alone, they have no hope of eternal life. Only eternal judgment awaits them. But when we rest on grace, when we rest on the unmerited favor of God, friends, we can truly rest because we have a guarantee, a divine pledge from God that we are His. And this is what's said in verse 16. Since working in the law brings about wrath for this reason... It is by faith in order that it might be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also who are those of faith in Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, when Paul says not only of those who are of the law, he is referring to those Jews that have been saved by faith apart from works. It's not only for the Jew, but it is also for all who put their faith as Abraham has who is the father of us all. And this guarantees the promise of justification that Abraham also received. What assures the sinner of eternal salvation, eternal life, is that God justifies those who believe in his salvation promise, in his salvation promise, and who do not attempt to work for it because that is not God's salvation. God's salvation is by faith alone apart from works because it is impossible to work for it to God's satisfaction. Our guarantee of God's promise of the blessing of eternal life is found in his justifying us through faith that he will credit his righteousness to our account. It is all of his grace through faith and not of our works. This is how we are assured that the promise of, us, of salvation is ours. It is through faith in his grace apart from works. I think there are many people that are working hard for their salvation so that they have some assurance. The harder I work, the more I'm assured. But Paul is saying, if you're working, you have no assurance. There is no guarantee. Our guarantee is that we put our trust and faith into the one that God was satisfied with, the works that God did approve. And that's only found in his son. 
And third, Paul says justification by faith alone provides salvation for all. Salvation for all. And by that, we, he means salvation for all who believe. Dr. Lawson, in our Sunday school class, just referred to this as broadly inclusive. The salvation of God is broadly inclusive. Paul writes that the guarantee of God's promise to Abraham and his descendants applies to not only the Jews who were the given the law and who believe, but also all who come by faith, as did Abraham. And this makes Abraham the father of all who come by faith, both believing Jews and believing Gentiles. We've already seen from verse 14 that this excludes all who come and add works to faith. But for all who come by faith alone, God's promise is guaranteed. Paul then continues this thought into verse 17, quoting again from the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 15 and verse 5, where he says, As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you. Abraham was promised to be a father of many nations, not just the Jewish nation. And Paul continues, in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which, that which does not exist. Here is another reality found in Abraham as a justification by faith alone. He was declared justified and imputed righteousness of God was given to him apart from circumcision. He was justified by faith apart from the law. And now Paul is showing he was justified by faith before there was any distinction between Jew and Gentile. Abraham was himself a Gentile. God made him the father of the Jews. But when God made this promise to Abraham, he was a pagan Gentile, worshiping false gods. And God came to him and said, this promise I make to you. I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to be the father. Out of that lineage, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I am making you that. Now, notice what Paul says about God in addition, following that statement. In the presence of him, God, he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. It was God's design from the beginning before there were any distinction of Jew and Gentile, that he would justify all who believe as Abraham did. His faith was then a model for all who received God's promise of salvation, regardless of racial or religious distinctions. All will be saved in the same way through faith alone in God's salvation. The promise of Abraham's justification and all those who believe after him was fulfilled in the presence of God. Salvation to all who believe is given another assurance here, a validation for us in the doctrine of justification by faith. The God who imputed his righteousness on the sinner who believes apart from the works is the God who brings life to those who are dead. He is the God, the same God, who created life out of nothing. God is a life-giving God to all who believe his promise His promise to raise those who are spiritually dead. How can God make a guarantee like that? Well, God is the creator. He created life. That's what Paul is saying. In fact, he created raising or bringing into being out of nothingness. God had nothing to work with but declaring his word. And he brought this all to being. This is the power of the God that promises, I will save those who believe, who put their trust in me. I will bring you out of spiritual death and bring you into spiritual life. He is the God of life. Paul is saying he can do this. He can do our salvation. Paul's wording at the end of verse 17 implies what God accomplished with Abraham at the beginning of the verse. God's calling into being that which does not exist most certainly has creation in mind. When God created the universe, the world, the living plants and creatures, he brought them into existence by what? His word. God spoke and said, let it be, and it became. It was so. In the same way, God said to Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. He had nothing to work with with Abraham. 
He created something out of nothing. In fact, he created something righteous out of something that was dark and sinful. Abraham did not make himself a father of many nations. God called him to life. God called him to faith in his eternal work of justifying sinners because he is the God of life. He's the God that can do this. He can create something out of nothing. And just as God created the world by his word, so he made Abraham the father to all who believe. Abraham, nothing in himself. Even uh, as a true believer understands, we had nothing in us. God has brought life and faith where there was none. And by his word, he called creation into being. By his word, he called Abraham to faith and made him the father of many nations. And of these nations, God continues to call to life and call to faith those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. It is by his grace alone, through faith alone, apart from his works. Now, one of the questions that I considered, and this is kind of my conclusion, my wrap-up this morning, one of the questions I considered at the beginning of this message is, why this lengthy treatment of justification by faith apart from works? And you have heard me this morning even repeat again and again that doctrine, because Paul has done so. We're into chapter 4, and we are still building on what he said in chapter 1 and verse 17 where he says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. He is still building on that argument, and here we are in chapter 4. Repeat, repeat, repeat. We've heard again and again about Gentiles alike being in sin and under condemnation. We've heard again and again about justification and justification by faith. Why this lengthy treatment of one particular doctrine, why the repetition of justification by faith apart from works? I believe in part we can answer it this way. It's because Paul is demanding that we see this, this salvation through God's eyes and not human eyes. We need to see it from heaven's point of view. It's the importance of seeing as God sees how incapable man is of pleasing him. So he repeats it again and again and again so we get it. And way back at the beginning, we could have said, no, I understand. I get it, Paul. What's with the repetition? You're boring me here. This is important for us to see from God's perspective. There is none righteous. No, not even one. Your righteousness in no way can contribute to salvation. We have to see grace from heaven's point of view. So why the extensive treatment and repetition of justification by faith? I want to give you three reasons this morning that I think are important for us. First of all, to see ourselves clearly. It is necessary, justification by faith alone apart from works, it is necessary for us to see ourselves clearly. We are prone to think we're not all that bad. There, there has to be some good in us. It's very hard for us to believe what God says in his word about our lack of righteousness and goodness. It's hard for us to think we have no understanding of God in his ways, that none of us are seeking God. In fact, there are modern church movements that have denied this truth and have redesigned church worship service for the seeker that God says doesn't exist. God is the actual seeker. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10 Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why would Jesus come to seek us out? Because none of us are seeking God. That's what Scripture says of us. For true believers, we know that we can tend toward thinking better of ourselves than we ought to. But a clear understanding of the doctrine of justification reinforces the reality that there is nothing in ourselves worthy of God's affections or his favor. We cannot earn his love or his blessing. It is all of grace through faith. This is so essential. It is a foundational gospel doctrine and it flies against all of our self-righteousness. And the more we see clearly the reality of justification by faith, the more that we grow in our understanding of this the more we grow in humility, not in self-righteousness. In other words, the more we grow as a Christian, the more maturity that comes 
is going to make us more humble, not, as more, not more prideful. And this is because this doctrine teaches us about the imputed righteousness of God, that any righteousness on the believer is not our own. It was imputed to us. It is not inherent in us. It was credited to our account by God through faith and not according to our meritorious efforts. The more we understand this, the more we grow in humility. I debated whether or not I should bring this up, but several of us have been dealing with individuals who are found deeply immersed in sinfulness before God, and yet who so strongly declare their own righteousness and their own spiritual successes. That is a sign of immaturity or that the doctrine of justification by faith is not even understood in the first place. If we can declare ourselves as marvelous, righteous, successful Christian, we have a problem. We don't understand the doctrine of justification. A true believer has nothing to boast about in regard to our righteousness since the gospel teaches us there's no righteousness to be found in us. Again, our righteousness is imputed, right? Not inherent. This is why Paul wrote, none of us should be boasting. We boast in who? We boast in the Lord. That is our only boast as Christians. We don't boast in self, we boast in the Lord. Second, the doctrine of justification by faith alone teaches us to see others clearly, to see others clearly. What is true for us in this doctrine is also true for those around us. None will be saved by their own merits. And the teaching of chapter 4, verse 14, can be very, very unsettling to many Christians as we look around at those that may be very religious or very spiritual. Where faith is expressed alongside working for salvation, their faith is void. It is a useless faith. Every other religion, down through history into the present, except the gospel of Jesus Christ, finds men and women laboring to achieve saving approval from God or a God or some favorable eternity. And this is based on the false belief that there is some good in mankind that God will accept. So as we as Christians, we look at other religious people, we say they're awfully good and they talk about the God and they, they say we're gonna, they're going to pray for us. And they talk about the cross even and Jesus Christ. Surely they must be saved, even though a little big stop on doing works and adding that works to faith. The scripture says, if you're working and believing, your believing is false. It is not a faith that God accepts. And many of these religious philosophies can even claim to be Christian and speak of Christ, speak of the cross. They talk about praying, doing good, living more lives. It can be very hard for us to see these people as having a faith that has no effect. What's going to teach us otherwise? It's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I can see now why Paul is pounding this into us, repeating again and again and again. We are saved by faith alone, in God's grace alone, and only by the works or the merits of Christ alone. Those that are very religious, very moral, very devoted, speak of Christ, the cross, they are lost if they're attempting to merit their own salvation. Or contribute to it. The gospel is incompatible with other religions. Ours is not one of many others. The gospel is incompatible with other religions. Ours is the truth of God. It is not a message of hope that we have created. This is the saving truth that is a promise of salvation by God, the God who raises life from death, and called into being that which doesn't even exist. This was a salvation that was long before our time, all the way back to Abraham and before. How was Adam saved? It was no different. The only means that sinners have to enter into the justifying grace of God is through faith in his promise to save. And if man proudly thinks to contribute to God's grace with their own works, whatever faith they have, again, is a useless faith. That's a hard declaration. But it is reminding us this comes right out of the doctrine of justification 
by faith alone apart from works. This is essential for us in our evangelistic efforts, especially to those efforts, or especially to those that we give effort to that are very religious and are confident in their meritorious efforts. It's important for us to know as we preach the cross of Christ. And third, justification by faith alone is important to us to see eternity clearly. To see eternity clearly. It causes us to see eternal hell and eternal heaven with greater clarity. And I think we all appreciate God's grace in saving us as believers. We sang of the grace of God this morning. We appreciate the unmerited favor of God. We praise God that our salvation is all of grace. We understand that it's not by our good deeds that we've been accepted into the kingdom of God, but we can also think because we're children of God, we're recipients of his grace, that we deserve the good Christian life. That in the here and now, things should go well for us. After all, we look at our devotion to Christ, our good moral behavior, perhaps we even consider how zealously we have served the cause of Christ or we've served his church or how we've raised our family in such a splendidly biblical manner where our kids heard the gospel. Should we not enjoy the fruit of our good works in having a good life here on earth? And we may even compare our miserable circumstance to those that are otherwise enjoying something good. Why can't I have what they have? It's hard for us not to do that. This is simply not the teaching on salvation by grace through faith. Everything in the gospel message teaches us that to put us in Christ is going to put us at odds with this world and in this life. And for some, the gospel life will mean a very difficult marriage. For some, the gospel life will mean heartache in the family. For others, the gospel life will find hardship in your workplaces, in our community relationships. Gospel living can mean financial hardships. It can mean we're going to be passed up for promotion. It can certainly mean social rejection. But for all believers, the gospel life is going to put us at odds with this world. We may not be in the same situation, the same circumstance as somebody else. But all of us are in this miserable life. That's the reality. To be in Christ is going to put us at odds in this world. And we're going to feel that adverse negative pressure perhaps in different ways. This was the promise of Jesus Christ. You're going to have trouble in this life. It was the example that we see in the apostles and the New Testament church. And I guarantee you there's not a one of us here that are suffering like Jesus did. Not a one of us here that has suffered even like the Apostle Paul. Yes, we have areas of suffering. But there's nothing in the New Testament church that shows us because of God's grace we're going to enjoy the good life here. What the justification by faith teaches us is to see clearly heaven and hell. It gives us a clear vision of the eternal judgment that we have been rescued from and the eternal life that we have been granted. The judgment of God that we have earned and that we deserve, we are not going to get. What we're going to get is a gift by God's grace of eternal life and we're going to enjoy his kingdom. His kingdom that is perfect, unlike this world. It is reality that our very best works and efforts are unacceptable to God and unworthy of his blessing. Yet by God's grace toward the unworthy and his love for sinners, he has promised to rescue those who believe in his work of salvation. And with a clear vision of the eternal judgment that we've been rescued from and the clear vision of the eternal life and the kingdom that we've been granted by faith, the gospel draws our attention to the glory that is to come, not the glory that men settle for in this temporal realm. Our eyes are fixed, where? In glory, eternity. This is not our home. This is not where our joy is going to come from. Praise God, we get some pleasures out of this life. Those are measures of God's grace, to be sure. But don't look for this life to be the success. Our eyes are fixed somewhere else. That's what Hebrews 11 was saying. Abraham even. He wasn't looking for this world. He was looking for the promise of what is yet to come. And you and I are heirs of that same promise. 
And yet so often we look to this world and this life to bring us satisfaction. It may not, but eternity will. That's the promise of God. We can be thankful to blessings we receive in this life. But again, we have a clear vision of what is yet to come. Our eyes should be fixed on the promise of a far better eternity guaranteed to all who believe in his promise. Father in heaven, there is so much here in this doctrine of justification by faith. We've just scratched the surface this morning. But I pray that what you have written and what we have learned here under the teaching of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 4, give us a vision for grace. Give us an appetite for grace. Fill our hearts with gratitude and praise to you and worship because we're people of grace. And all that you've promised to us, promises that we don't deserve, but because of the kindness and the love of your heart for sinners you provided through the redemptive work of your son and by the means of faith. Thank you for this. We worship you now in Christ. Amen. Please stand with us as we close out our service.